Well, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Legal Glass Ceilings. It gives me enormous pleasure to welcome Susan Dunn to the podcast this afternoon. Susan has had a long and interesting career as a lawyer, and she's now the queen of litigation funding, as described in the press. She was involved right in the early stages. Indeed, I, I had a minor part as well involved in exploring the whole issue of litigation funding, because obviously without funding, no one can bring a case to court unless you act as a litigant in person, which is not a practical option in many cases. So creating this access to justice, creating a business on the back of this access to justice is a very impressive role. And it carves out a new and interesting career for lawyers, not being lawyers directly, but being lawyers within a funding organisation that supports litigation. And Susan, good afternoon. Well, hello, David. It's lovely to see you. When I think back, it's 20 years since we had that uh, meeting in a tube train that led to all of this. So it's all down to you. Oh, well, I'm, you're, you're very flattering. I'm sure you would have got there otherwise. But um, let's start, if we can, in true Mary Poppins style at the beginning. Tell me a little about your background and how did you become a lawyer? Yeah, so I, I did, in the end, what was the fairly traditional route to doing so uh, in terms of you know, getting the A-levels, doing a law degree and then law school and starting my articles. When I, uh, my mum found a hymn book from school, she was quite good at keeping childhood stuff. And in the front of that hymn book, this fairly, I don't know, precocious child aged eight had written, when I grow up, I want to be not one, but three things. I wanted to be a social worker, a lawyer and prime minister. So I had three things in mind. And I think um, from doing sort of work experience in the criminal firm that my history teacher's husband was involved with, the Wright Hassel in Coventry, through to just a, a real interest. And I think I have one of those omnivorous brains that likes and, and still loves what the law offers, which is that constant variety of subject matter that is within each case that we have to consider. So for me, it was that I needed something that was not going to be terribly singular in terms of the variety that it provided to me. And both being a lawyer and being a litigation funder has, has been absolutely perfect for that. And were there lawyers in the family? Or was this a no, new No, I was, the, um, I was actually the first person to... Actually, that's not fair. My grandmother had gone to teach a training college in the late 20s, um, self-funded, having had, you know, her parents had both died. So she was a pretty phenomenal woman and a great, a great uh, positive influence on me. But there's no... There is allegedly a doctor, Scottish doctors, some, some significant generations ago, but that's a little bit of a, a myth, I think, as opposed to... A reality. So no, there was none about engineers. My dad was terribly disappointed at how how impractical I am compared with all the other kind of engineering types in the family. Well, that's another thing that we share because my father was an engineer and he equally fails, disappointed at my inability to understand one end of a spanner from another. <laughs> um, so where did you go to university? So I, I loved school, really loved school, changed schools because my dad moved from, so I went from a grammar school to a comprehensive school when I was, I think, 13. He offered me Warwick Girls School and I walked through and thought, no, that all looks a bit too serious for me. And I, and I said, I think I want to go to comprehensive instead. I was a bit erratic in my exam outcomes, so I could do brilliantly well and then also not brilliantly well. And, and in the, I think it's still the case that the predicted grades that my teachers gave me were not at the higher end. 
So in the end, it was a little bit Hobson's choice about where I went to university. So I went to Birmingham University, which at the time was lived near Leamington, was really just up the road. And the law faculty at the time had a pretty good reputation. And so that's where I went and, and did law. And they didn't enjoy it much, I have to say. Yeah, law at university. I mean, I didn't do your law at university. I did, I did theology and philosophy, which, of course, is as useful as a chocolate teapot most of the time. But um, law at university doesn't get a great write-up from many people. It's not that interesting to study, is it? It really isn't. And, you know, I'd had, I had loved school. I did history, French and economics at A-level, loved them, all of those subjects. And when people come to me now and they say, my child wants to study law, where should they study? I say, what do they really love at school? And then like history or French, I say, go do that because you will get much better marks at the things that you're really good at doing. And and so I discourage people from studying law, which may be a bad thing, I don't know. But I think the other thing that I felt is that it was only when I was, in practice that actually a lot of it really made sense things that seemed terribly complicated when they were taught like trust law when you actually put them in practice aren't complicated at all but they felt very theoretical and not very practical and I just didn't enjoy it very much and that was that was a great shame because it felt like a a loss of a period of what could have been really I mean I'm very envious that you did what you did because actually that was much more interesting and frankly mind expanding than doing a law degree. There's an interesting parallel here. My daughter did medicine and she went to a university which taught medicine in a way what's called problem-based learning. In other words, they started with a problem and then they worked out the medical solution to it and they taught the students through the analysing of problems. I I don't see why we couldn't do that for law, because after all, in the end, when you practice law, it's a set of tools in a tool bag to try and solve a practical problem that a client's got. Yeah, I agree. And, and, it, and it just didn't seem it was like, here's here's some theory. Here's some cases. Go and read them. Remember, you're 18. So your experience of the world is is very small at that stage in terms of the things you're talking about in these cases. And it just didn't have any kind of resonance for me. And I and I just found it very, very disappointing as a as a and I've got a massive interest in the world. And yes, I just didn't it just didn't work for me. So it was a shame. And I I realized I'd I'd had really good teachers at school and I they were passionate about their subjects. And I just don't think the 86 to 89 years were Birmingham's best. I'm sure it's a lot better nowadays, at least I certainly hope so. Yeah. Anyway, it didn't put you off so much that you didn't then pursue. Were they still called articles in those days, or have they, they become yeah, a article, article clerks? It was what we were called. It all sounds terribly quaint and Dickensian now, doesn't it? You know, the other thing I was saying to somebody is that I was there eighty-six to eighty-nine. I got my job with what was then Rag and Co in nineteen eighty-seven. At the beginning of my second year, that's when they recruited. I didn't start work with them until September of 1990. And it's just extraordinary to me that you would recruit people in that way. And it was a very relaxed recruitment process where they had you in. And they had a really nice ethos of Rag & Co, which is that they said, look, we're going to assume you're clever. We just need to know that you're capable of being sensible around clients. One of their measures was if the senior partner and the article clerk 
were going to London on the train because there was only Birmingham office at the time. And the senior partner missed the train. Would the senior partner be okay about the article clock being left with the, the firm's most important client? And if the answer was no, didn't matter how clever you were or where you'd gone to university, you wouldn't get the job. So it was an early, very early in its you know, approach to service mentality and client handling. And that's ethos from John Crabtree, who was the most inspirational managing or senior partner, as he was called at the time, most inspirational person to work for was, was incredible, actually. Ragnarok at that point, now it's WLG Gowling, but Ragnarok at that point was not the massive firm that it later became. No, it was a, it, it was it, sort it of was, mid-sized commercial firm, wasn't it? Really it really was. It was a single office, Birmingham only, very proudly Birmingham only. And there was sort of a nice competition in Birmingham between what became DLA, Evershed, Pinsons and Edge and Ellison. And there was sort of the five firms who would vie for being the top dog in Birmingham. And I have to say, it was a, it was when I talked to others about their training time, there was 22 of us that started in 1990. And that alumni is still really strong. And, and I just think that it was the most wonderful place to work. It was, and you just had the most wonderful time. And we played hard, we worked really, really hard. But I, I do realise how lucky I was to have started my working life there. And the approach that was instilled in us was, I don't always manage to apply it, but it was, it was a really great place to work. Was part of that the fact that my impression of Rag Co was always it was not a terribly hierarchical firm? What mattered was your talent, your commitment, your ability, not where you were in the pecking order. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, look, it had it had a many, you know, we had the the partners who we were all a bit afraid of in the usual way when you're that age. Um, but no, I think it was a place which gave massive opportunity. And when, again, when I look at the responsibility I was given at a very young age to take on things, not always brilliantly, I have to do it, um, was, was a, they, they did embolden you to be courageous. And, and I remember I was getting in new clients whilst I was really junior because I was allowed to go out and do that and get clients if I found the opportunity to do so. And I, and I loved that, really, that freedom. But there came a time when you moved on. Tell me about the next steps in your career. I will just say one other thing before we move on that I'm reminded of, David, um, that I once went to work, this feels like 100 years ago but now, I once went to work wearing culottes. Culottes look too much like trousers. And the head of HR, a wonderful woman called Audrey Price, was told this and came up and told me that I had to go home and come back the next day wearing a, a proper skirt because women were not allowed to wear trousers then. That sounds like I'm talking about 200 years ago. But I still find it extraordinary that that was the way that things were at that time. Anyway, this is um, the 1990s. Yeah, I know it's extraordinary, isn't it? Um, so anyway, Ragnarok also for its forward-thinking things, because this is the days before the internet and before mobile phones, had an exchange scheme with a law firm in Atlanta called Smith, Gambrell and Russell. And if you behaved and you wanted to go, they would send two lawyers over from Ragnarok for about six or eight weeks. And then the, the law firm would send two over for about six or eight weeks in return. Now, we got the great deal because we got six weeks, six or eight weeks in Atlanta in the summer, which I just loved. They got the not so good deal, which was six or eight weeks in October, November in Birmingham. So uh, we, I don't think that, that, that we had the better deal. Anyway, I managed to behave 
and got on the scheme and went over and did it and absolutely loved it. Just had the most wonderful time. They were such wonderful hosts. And I fell in love with somebody there. And as a result, decided that a year later, I did manage a year later to move out there and go and live and work in, in the US, which I then did for four and a half years and had the most amazing time. I saw masses of the state. I started as a lawyer with, firstly, with a firm called Powell Goldstein. I don't know whether they still exist. And then very quickly with a firm called well, Paul Hastings, which we all know in the employment side of things, because, of course, that's how you and I know each other, from me instructing you for employment matters. And then by a chance meeting, ended up becoming a diplomat for the British government for three years. Uh, Vice Consul Investment was my title. And I was responsible for the seven southeastern states in the US. And my job was to generate inward investment into the UK from companies based there, trying to get them to come to the UK as opposed to anywhere else in Europe that they might have been considering. And it was the most glorious job of learning loads about my own country, traveling around the US massively, and generally having a, an extraordinarily interesting time, which was just never in the game plan in that, that hymn book of age days <laughs> to find oneself in those extraordinary circumstances. And it was, it was a wonderful time. I loved it. So you weren't the Prime Minister, but at least sort of an indirect way, you were working for the Prime Minister. <laughs> Junior rankings, yeah, exactly, exactly. It was a fascinating, fascinating world. But there was a time when you came back, and I suspect that was about the time when we met on the Tube. Yeah, well, so I came back right around uh, 2000, and I came back with one of the, jo- the companies I had helped out to set up in the UK, which was a dot-com trying to put government services online. Um, far too early the, you know the, the bandwidth the the appetite all of those things it did not work and the dot-com that we set up with some very interesting people like Heather Rabatz, Gavin Davis who was chair of the BBC at the time a company called Empower we were trying to and, and I remember one of my glorious successes was I'm responsible for putting the application for fishing licenses online. So it was all the glamour um, in terms of doing these things. But that didn't work. And so when I bumped into you, I was busy doing something for which I was wholly unqualified, which was overseeing a, an IT project, which was trying to join up things within what was then the merger of customs and what is now HMRC and doing some senior leadership training within the civil service. And I think that day I had just been either coming from the cabinet office or I was going somewhere when there you appeared like a vision. Well, I was very surprised to see you. And I, at that point, was talking to various people about setting up a litigation funding company. And we duly did. And it operated for a number of years, wasn't wholly successful, but it did create a career for you from which you've thrived. Yeah, well, I mean, it was interesting because really what we were doing with an incredibly modest amount of money was testing the concept. We were the first people doing it here in the insolvency market. And I thought, gosh, won't we be popular? We're handing out money. And little did we know, you know, the the reserve nature of lawyers when you turn up saying, would you like some money? How hard that was to persuade them this was something that was doable. We had the fabulous Gabriel Moss helping us out with the advice on the fact that it was all legitimate. We had the wonderful Chris Morris as our chair, who was brilliant for opening doors. 
But, you know, with the modest amount of money that we had, it's, it's difficult to build a big enough portfolio to, to spread your risk. You know, we as funders get accused of being too conservative about the cases we'll take on. And yet, as you and I know very well, even when you're very conservative, lots of cases don't go well. And sometimes, you know, there's all sorts of things, even if something succeeds, it doesn't succeed at the value you thought or you can't enforce, or there's always something odd that can happen in a piece of litigation. So it was it was very challenging doing it in the way that we did. I think one of the lessons that certainly I learned from that, that experience is that Litigation depends on a whole series of factors, success in litigation. One of them is the character of the lawyers who are running the litigation on both sides. And you can have the best bit of litigation, but it'll fail with the worst lawyers. And you can have a really difficult bit of litigation, maybe not hopeless, but you can get something out of it if your lawyers approach it in the right way. So you presumably are in the business of picking lawyers as well as picking cases. Absolutely. We target the lawyers with whom we want to work. And so we try and build relationships with those who you know, know what they're doing and have been around the block and have got a lot of experience. I mean, frankly, the same is true of the funded party. So, I mean, we have been defrauded by parties we have funded. And so you, you also, if you, and it's a feeling, you know how it is, don't you? It's a feeling when you're talking to somebody and, you know, on the face of it, they seem to have a good case, but you've got that feeling that, this is not going to be a good relationship, then no matter how good you feel about the case, you have to say, I've got to trust that feeling. And I don't know that this relationship is going to work. Because the thing is, I mean, the the oldest case that we are funding at Harbour, we started funding in 2008. That's 14 years. And trial is still a year or two away. And so you've got a long relationship with people that you've got to feel like that relationship's going to work. Because none of this is quick. Nobody goes into funding to make a quick buck because these are big cases, these are difficult cases, these are challenging cases, and they can take a very long time to conclude. And be very expensive. Hence, you need a big capital fund in order to make it work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, just horrendously expensive. Uh, Some of the cases that we run, when you look at the budgets for these things, these are running into the multi, multi million pounds. And of course, because of course, you've got in this jurisdiction, not just the own side costs, but the adverse costs to deal with. Um, And so it's, yeah, it's a very expensive endeavour. I'm interested in hearing your views on what makes a good lawyer, because you're in an interesting position. You pick lawyers you trust. And people listening to this podcast are seeking to make their careers in law. And I think it'd be very interesting for them to hear what you look for when you're sizing up, can I trust you to litigate with my money? Yeah. Do you know, it's interesting because there's a little bit of a, I feel like if I went back into practice now, I'd be a much better lawyer. I feel being a funder makes you look at cases in a different way. I think sometimes as lawyers in practice, we can get overly fascinated by the intellectual aspects of things. And, oh, this will be nice. And people come to us with cases saying, oh, we could make some new law with this. I don't want to make any new law. Now, have we made new law? Absolutely. But you really want the most boring of cases with the, the biggest track record behind them. One of the things that I talk to particularly new colleagues and I ask them about when they've gone to talk about a case and I'm asking them, 
lots of questions that are not to do with the case. Who is the defendant? How old is the claimant? What is their, I know this might sound a bit curious, but what's their relationship status? Is there somebody that is sensibly with them? Or what is the motivation for, uh, what does success look like in this case? And I do find that too often lawyers are not curious enough about what we might describe as the softer aspects around the case, but which are just as important as the legal analysis of a case. And we've had a few people on secondment to us, barristers and solicitors of all different types. And they've invariably left saying, A, how much they've enjoyed it because of the sheer volume and variety of what we see. But they say, I'm going to write in a different way. I've realized that I've been writing not for the reader, but almost for myself and how they communicate and realizing that they uh, need to communicate more clearly and more succinctly than they have been doing. And, and I find that when I get opinions through which are dense and overly legalistic, that for me is a bit of an alarm bell because the cleverest lawyers I've ever met write in the simplest of language because they have confidence about their analysis of what is going on. And they've also had enough sufficient curiosity about what the motivations are that go around it. So I think just keep being, it, it, you know what, it is amazing to me what people will tell you if you ask them. It is very rare that I have somebody who says, you know, what, I'd rather not answer that question. People volunteer a lot of information. They like talking about themselves. That's what I'm doing today. Um, and, um, and therefore they will, you know, people like being asked questions and they'll tell you things. So keep asking the questions. Be just endlessly curious is mine. So just, just trying to distill that into some bullet points for those who are listening. The first is be curious about the case and the people behind the case. Absolutely. It's not just a case. A case can only work with people who will give evidence, who will find documents, who will recall what was said, yep. who will put a context to the framework. Yep. So be curious about the people. Yes, very much so. Secondly, I think you're saying understand the motivation and psychology, if you can, yes. of those on both sides who were involved in the dispute. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I remember being at a conference uh, of, fam of trust lawyers. Trust lawyers are really interesting because they do a lot of complex family things. And they tell the best stories often because they talk about the disputes they've been involved with. And they say, you know, we can be in disputes that are worth millions and millions and millions of pounds disputes between two brothers or something like that and you think that it's about the money and then when you dig in you find that it's because one of the brothers got a shiny red bicycle for his birthday and the other didn't and he's never forgotten it or that the resolution was well would you just invite me over for Sunday lunch now and then and then they resolve things and and I ask questions so things like we've had for example rabbis who've proven to be amazing mediators in particular disputes because you say oh actually he really he really listens to what his rabbi says and and you think great well then can we get that person involved in trying to take the emotion out of things and it makes me laugh but people will say well commercial disputes they're not emotional so they're easier to resolve that's nonsense. It involves human beings and, and all the emotions that go with it. So it's about it's about trying to unpack those and hopefully figure out what will get this thing to resolve. And thirdly, I think you're saying 
good lawyers reach conclusions, they don't give you options. And they have the ability to express those conclusions in non-legal, straightforward language. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and it's a joy. When I get those sorts of advices through, I go, ah, this is good. Because you know what? Most people aren't interested in the what goes on to help you reach your conclusion. Some might be, but mostly they're not. And most people want to be advised. They want to be given the guidance and say, if this was your money, what would you do? I would do this. Great. Fantastic. Let's go. Of course, people engage. But that clarity of communication and double checking, verifying that the person you're advising has understood what it all means is crucial. And and it's a joy when you see it in action. Do you think too many lawyers write opinions for the benefit of their potential professional negligence insurance and not the clients? Well, you know, it's a little bit how it's become with some judgments, I think, where because people are trying to avoid, and and it's laudable, um, decisions being appealed, the judgments get can get longer where the judge has to show, look, I considered all of these things and this is why I've reached my conclusion, when they should be entitled to say, I know what I'm talking about, this is my view of the law, I've heard all the facts and here's the answer. And so, yes, I, I wonder whether sometimes that's the equivalent of that. Not always convinced it's that. I think sometimes it's people feeling that they've got to show how clever they are. Well, Hopefully, I'm assuming that that's a given and that you know what you're talking about. So why don't you just cut to the chase and tell me what you think about what's going on here? Yeah, when I'm writing opinions, one of the best advices is paragraph two is always headed summary of advice. Yeah. Then (laughs) there's one or two paragraphs that say, I have concluded as follows. And I never write those until I've got to the end of the opinion. Yeah. But then I'll try and ask myself, okay, what am I really advising? Yeah. And yeah. I'm sure that many clients never read beyond the... I, I'm confident of that. <laughs> <laughs> but that's fine. Yeah, yeah. That's absolutely. Fine. If you, you're showing your workings almost, aren't you, with the rest of it. And if, if people want to see your workings, they can. Um, and, and, and we, of course, because we're quite nerdy, want to see all of that because we want to see how analogous the case law is to what we're looking at and all of that. But most people just want to know, well, what's the answer? Tell me what the answer is. And, and that is not to be forgotten. Can I ask you about something else, Susan? You've been involved in driving forward quite a major structural change in the way that litigation is funded. What are your views on the extent to which good lawyers are traditional, conservative, or innovative and entrepreneurial? Where do they sit in that spectrum? Well, I mean, look, definitely, I am pleased to say that after 20 years, there's been a big recognition of the the need for funding and a recognition that you know, lawyers went through a phase of assuming that because they had big clients, those big clients didn't need funding. And then they are reminded that big companies are really just a series of little companies all under a big roof who have budgets, who have finite budgets, who have financial challenges, and have to spend a lot of that on defending claims. And therefore, 
by them providing an option of funding, actually they generate more work. So the entrepreneurial aspect is, is lawyers recognizing that they will generate more work if they talk to their clients about how they pay for their, i.e. the lawyers, services. So I'm, I've, it's really kind of a dying off of this, well, this funding, I don't know about this, um, is, is that which I encountered all the time for a long time, much longer than perhaps I might have hoped for. It is it's there, and but it, but like anything, is there's degrees, right? So there's those who who have got it and got it for years and recognise that you know, like companies finance every other aspect of their business. Why wouldn't they finance their mitigation? So this this isn't just for those with no money. It's actually used by sensible people who have lots of money. That's why they have lots of money because they use other people's money to do things. So I am seeing there's a lot more of of embracing of that. And. Are lawyers overpaid? Uh, you know, you know, I, I don't think, I think the hourly rate has got out of hand. There's a survey, and I don't have it to hand, unfortunately, but which has shown the exponential increase in rates over the past 10 years without masses of justification. And here's two things I get frustrated by, is still the inability to look at what value is added with the work that is done. And the other thing that I get, because I actually don't care what the hourly rates are. I do care what the bill is. Um, so your hourly rate can be £10,000 an hour for as far as I'm concerned. But if for £10,000 an hour, you do the most amazing things, away you go. That's absolutely fine. What I am still frustrated about is there's still not enough use of technology to get rid of what I call the admin of law. I want to pay for the experience and the knowledge. I do not want to be paying people to do whatever the equivalent of, of you know, putting papers in a folder is. Um, the, the amount of what we do that can be outsourced, can be done with the use of technology is still massively not being done. But there are mechanisms that we propose that nobody, everybody goes, oh yeah, but you know, I've got my billable hour targets. And, and that's the bit which I think is, it creates a conflict. There is no doubt about it in terms of efficiency and the approach to, to charging and setting value. I think lawyers have sort of tried to think of themselves as bankers. Well, bankers often are only paid contingently on achieving an outcome for a client. And yes, then that can be significant sums, but they don't get paid anything if it doesn't happen. And uh there's still not enough of that around. So the message to young lawyers coming out of that is to be as creative as they can to deliver value to the client rather than just looking at the extent of the billable hours. Yes, absolutely. And to have a more engaged conversation. Now, it may not always be that you can figure something out, Susan, what's the best piece of advice in your legal career that you think you've ever been given? Gosh. I, I feel like I just absorb, whenever I see excellent lawyering, I just try and soak it all up and, and then I become an amalgam of those who I have watched. So the, the communication piece, I think the testing and verifying, one of the things, and we, we know this, don't we, from lots of studies, is that people's listening skills and what they hear are notoriously poor. 
and and we are we can come away from a conversation two of us having heard two completely different things. So I think the testing and verifying what you've been told, what you're telling somebody is incredibly important. It is extraordinary to me how often there are cross wires. And I regularly just played back things to people, you know, just an email afterwards. And although I was not much good at maths, I, you know, got what was required. But that's equivalent of showing back to people what your understanding of something is and having them do the same. Because endless amounts of misunderstanding I have avoided by doing that. And I'm not sure that we do that enough. Um, the other thing is, I think, you know, as I say to colleagues as well, is that people almost want us to go in and kind of put a metaphorical arm around. It's like, well, here's the money and we're going to provide a solution together. And I think that's how people want to feel without being too, I don't know, whatever the word is about it, is that people go to their lawyers to feel that sense of, you know, help me own this problem and figure it out. Let's do it together. And they feel disappointed if that isn't happening and they get to the end. And I think even if the outcome isn't as everybody anticipated, if they feel that you have been with them on it, it is our role to give that confidence and that feeling that we can sort this out. I mean, the first one seems to me to be indicative of the job we're in, because how much litigation has been generated by cross wires and misunderstandings? You know, not all, but a very high proportion of litigation starts that way. People don't usually start malicious. They simply have different expectations out of a conversation and hear what they what they want to hear. And so the idea of us using the knowledge of what happens in the rest of life to make sure that at least in our sphere, we don't have cross wires, yeah. that we understand, I think is really important. And the second point you make, seems to me to be really about empathy. It's yeah. understanding that the purchase of legal services is very often a distressed purchase and the client needs a bit of empathy yeah. because they've probably gone through a lot before they even come through your door. And, and you know, and that comes back to a couple of things. So I had coaching um, and I found it invaluable to have coaching and I commend it to everybody to have coaching. And when you try and sort of describe what the process was and what it was, it, it's quite hard because it's quite personal each time. And, and this was, you know, for me, for dealing with challenging situations. And it then makes me think of the, the only theories of jurisprudence that I ever had much um, bother with, which is the American realists. And the American realists said you basically you keep in mind the mood that the person brings into the room so if the judge had a row with somebody right before he came in that's going to put him in a certain him or her in a certain place and and that's the point isn't it you know we all go into a room with everything that's going on in our heads um, and that affects what we hear how we respond what we absorb and we can't know all of the things that are there so and, and, and when somebody behaves in a certain way, rather than seeing it as personal, recognising that it's all the complex issues that go to make up that person and, and therefore not responding to challenging behaviour by escalating it and trying to, to, to calm it down. So I think that's, that's another thing that I try. So pick up the clues. 
yeah, really, that's what it's about, you know, look and listen. And uh, and we've lost that a bit, haven't we, with, with doing as we do and not seeing each other as much in person. There's, there's so many clues that don't come through a screen. Yeah, we've still got one mouth and two ears, though, and that seems yeah. to be an appropriate proportion. Susan, final thing I want to ask you is this. Looking back at your 20-year-old self, what would you say to your 20-year-old self now as the way to get into this incredibly competitive profession? Yes, it's interesting. You know, I was so singular and so ambitious at that age, and I was set on a very defined path, and I was intent that I was going to be the senior partner of Ranko by the time I was 32. And then I went on this exchange scheme and I and, and life unfolded in front of me, right? And that was because one of the things that I, I do know that I'm good at is I am good at creating opportunity and taking advantage of opportunity. Now, that became a problem for a little while because I saw opportunity in everything. And as a result, I couldn't stop saying yes to everything. But I think you do have to say yes to a lot. I think particularly in the early days of your career, I think you need to, any opportunity that you get to be exposed to something different, to meet new people, to build your network. And I worry about the people who've been starting their careers during lockdown, that their, their inability to build those networks in the way that they had, they would have been able to do if they'd been able to be in person is slowing them down and to be able to get back out there and go and do all these things. The network that I have worldwide now is because I said yes to everything in, in those, particularly in those early days. I've got better now at being more um, selective with how I spend my time because in the end you don't have finite time. But it is absolutely to look for all the opportunities to build networks, to learn about the other things that are going on and it is extraordinary to me that I will have people who say, five years ago, you gave me a presentation, 10 years ago, you gave me a presentation, and I've now moved and I'm now this person in this firm or whatever, and I've got a case. And so giving yourselves as much opportunity as possible, don't just sit in your office, absolutely seize every opportunity without question. So selectively kiss a lot of frogs. <laughs> and absolutely. <laughs> That's, that's really the best way of putting it. And I have kissed a lot of frogs over the years. Susan, thank you very much for your time today. I think what you said is fascinating looking back on what's been a very interesting, diverse and successful career, opening up a new area for litigation funding. And I'm sure that people listening to this will gain enormous amounts of wisdom from your insights. So thank you very much. Well, thank you, David. And you know, genuinely, had it not been for that tube direct train, I don't, I don't know what the alternative version of me looks like. It doesn't look like this. So I do have to thank you for all starting with you. So it's lovely twenty years later to catch up and go, well, look at all this. We had that sliding doors moment on a we tube. We definitely did. And it's been brilliant reliving it. Thank you very much. <laughs>